Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoy today's message. G'day. And a big hi to those watching from home, whether you're watching live, whether you are listening to us after the fact, it's great to have uh, you with us? It's great to have me in your ears. I don't know if that's the right thing to, to say, but it's great to have you here with us. I want you to welcome our online community this morning. Thanks, guys. Well, I'm going to hit, uh, hit straight into it today, so uh, you can all get down the beach. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. A couple of weeks ago, we had a special guest here, Nick Reskey. Uh, who came to be with us at the start of November. He said three important things over us as a church, having just met us within 24 hours. Uh, he said, Bayside, I want you to know you are a significant church. You are in something that seems like a season of spring, of preparation for another decade coming. And thirdly, he said, I feel that you are a restorative church. I feel a restorative spirit on you and I thought I'd capture that to see out the rest of November, kind of putting my lead pastor hat on before we head into the Christmas season and all that uh, summer craziness takes place and just share with you something of what it means to be a restorative church. A word like that comes as no surprise to us when we, uh, 18 years ago when God first spoke to us, about moving down here and beginning Bayside, God gave us words from Zephaniah, Zechariah uh, in early 2002 and mid-2002, which were all words around God's restorative power and ability. One of the reasons we struggle to read the prophets in the Old Testament is because, let's admit it, they are mostly doom and gloom. They're pretty depressing, much of the time. But as I often say, within all the doom and gloom, there are hints of hope. With all the destruction that the prophets speak about to God's old covenant community, there is always a promise of restoration. And so there are many prophetic promises recorded of restoration. God has a restorative nature. And to that we say, yes, he does. And God has done restoration in our life. And uh, he will continue to do that to us and through us. And so I wanted to camp in and around there. And I thought, of course, I can't just bring a timely word. As is the Chad's case, I also need to put my teacher hat on and uh, speak to you from the scriptures about one of the great restorations that the Bible paints a picture of. It happens in a period of time, a few hundred years, uh, 500 or so years before Jesus, uh, after God's people are sent away from the promised land because of Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard all that before. They go to Babylon and God says, don't worry, I will restore you. And after Babylon is taken away and the Persian Empire is now in charge, the first Persian king, a guy called Cyrus, says, now's the time, Jews, you can head back to your promised land and the restorative program process and uh, began and essentially in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah tell the narrative story of this there are three waves of restoration three waves of people that go back to the promised land and we looked at the first one last week in the early chapters of Ezra where they restored starts with a W worship they restored worship three waves of restoration Zerubbabel led the first one, about 50,000 people went with him and they restored worship. The very first thing they did uh, is they laid the foundation for a new temple because they knew, and the king of Persia told them, your God needs to be worshipped there. And so as you read the book of Ezra, chapter 1, 2 and 3, God's people, God's pioneering people, they leave their land that they've been in for the last 70 years and they venture on down to Jerusalem or up really because it's on a hill, so the Bible always says up, but they venture up to Jerusalem and they start the rebuilding. Well, after laying the foundation of the temple and everything going pretty good, we then hit chapter 4 and there's opposition and intimidation And they submit to that, regrettably, and for over 10 years, 10 or 15 years, that building project is stopped. Boo. Everyone say boo. How many of you pioneering entrepreneurial people just 
hate it when a project stops. Gee, it's so annoying. Boo! And so it stops. But time didn't stop. A lot of things happened uh, over that stopping period up here in Persia. The guy who sent them down, uh, he ends up getting killed. So he hands over to his son, Cambyses, who wasn't very good to God's people uh, in that time. He actually wasn't particularly friendly to the Jews. But eight years in, he commits suicide. And uh, one of his uh, generals called Darius takes over. He leads for a number of years and hands over to his son Xerxes, who hands over to his son Artaxerxes. And so these are the kings of the Persian Empire and they all feature in the story of God's people. This fourth king is the one who married Esther. Do you remember the beauty pageant contest we looked at a few weeks ago? Okay, He married Esther and uh, did that whole thing. His son Artaxerxes will feature in our reading today because the book of Ezra spans over 80 years okay so it's, a, it's quite a big book well in the third year in this third king when Darius was in charge basically political favor begins pouring back to God's people and he encourages them to keep rebuilding they've stopped for over 10 years but he encourages them and more than that two prophets come along and encourage them to keep building wake up it's time to keep this thing going. And those two prophets are called Haggai and Zechariah. Okay, Haggai, you can go home and read that today. It takes about five minutes, two chapters. Haggai says to them, listen, somewhere in this last 10 or so years, you've made a mistake. And you've told yourself, maybe it's not time yet. Maybe it's not God's time Okay, this message got into the heart, the intimidation that they faced, which is why they stopped. He said, you say now is not the time, but I tell you, yeah, it is. Okay, it is the time. You're wrong. You need to get on with God's program. Okay, don't submit to that intimidation and go, well, it didn't work out the first time, so maybe it's not God's will. Everyone say, boo. Didn't work out the first time. No, it is God's will. And you guys have changed your priorities over the years. You're putting yourself first rather than God's house, which needs to be built. And so that's Haggai's message. And he comes along and he says, listen, I know it's discouraging what you've seen. You've been discouraged for over 10 years because it's not quite as good as what you remember. But the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former. Some of us, the longer we walk with Jesus... And the more we've seen in life, we are tempted sometimes to go, you know what? It's not quite as good at what it, as what it used to be. Not quite as good as what it... Do you remember the 70s? Boy, they were good years. Do, do you remember the charismatic... They, they were good years. Do you remember the 90s when with that? They were good years. You say, now hang on. Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. He leads us in triumphal procession and there is always greater glory ahead and so these prophetic voices come at this time and they say get your butts in the gear boys and get building again okay so that's what chapter uh, four uh, something like that they do that after 20 they, they get their act together they start rebuilding the temple and it's all done 20 years after they first arrived well that's where we hit chapter that's a long time that's where we hit chapter seven Okay, and chapter 7 begins the story of the second wave of returnees. Okay, there's a 60 year narrative gap. Now, the fifth king is in charge over here, and he's got a guy up here in Persia called Ezra, and he sends Ezra down to do some further work and restoration. Because, how many of you know, even though there was a big wave of people that left in the first caravan? It's a massive caravan, 50,000 people. There were some people that stayed. So Ezra was one of them, or his family at least stayed. Um, what's his name? Mordecai and Esther obviously stayed because they were there in the era of that fourth king. And another guy that stayed in this time was a guy called Daniel because he's prophesying about these kings. Okay, So a lot of God's people stayed. Well, this second wave of people comes down and thus begins a restoration primarily centred not around worship, but primarily centered around the word. So as I see it in these three waves of restoration, just like John, uh, just like Peter was restored three times with Jesus, so there are three waves of restoration in this Old Testament story, a restoration of worship, a restoration of the word, 
and ultimately next week Nehemiah a restoration of the walls and so that's why I've been very clever very very clever and have called this series www.restorationchurch can we have that slide there just so everyone's impressed by how I got three W's and I found a way to yeah okay whatever (laughs) I put all this effort in worship you're meant to remember something out of that okay this is my diary uh by the way it's just it's just my diary can i just have your bible i I didn't bring mine no just kidding just kidding uh if you have a bible why don't you turn to ezra chapter 7 what i want to do today is i want to look at this second wave of restoration uh and uh look at how a restorative community number one is a worshiping community but a restorative community is a word based community and that's the emphasis of what Ezra brings in this restorative wave okay and so I'm going to read from Ezra 7 I'm just going to do a bit of teaching put Chad's teaching hat on and then I'll finish up with five things that the word of God does for us five benefits of being a word-based people so that's where we're going today can you handle that all good you don't know you can handle it you can handle the truth here we go Ezra, Ezra chapter 7, and uh, I'll read from verse 1. These will be on the screen, and I'll read uh, in a typical Chad pace. Many years later, in fact, this is 60 years after the temple's finally done. There's a 60-year gap. Every now and again, this happens in the Bible, which is why it's a bit confusing to read. This is why we need to read the history books with the prophets. So you know when these prophets come in and when they're speaking. Okay, that's why we're really big on that here. But the point is, many years later, 60 years after the temple had finally been finished, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, there was a man named Ezra. He was the son of Sariah, Azariah, Hilkah, Shalom, Zadok, Ahitub, Amaria, Azariah, Meroeth, Zeriah, Uzi, Buki, Abishua, Phineas, Eliza, and Aaron the high priest. And really, something, something like that. So, you got some ideas, Sarah? Yeah, good ideas, good baby names coming, coming up out of that. Now, listen, all the scripture might not interest you, but there's a reason for all of it. Okay, and this is very important. Uh, the bloodline of priests and God's people in this era was a very important thing. So hence why there are a number of genealogies in the scripture. And we're going to see that again come Christmas time when we read of Jesus' genealogy as well. Verse 6. This Ezra was a scribe who was well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. He came up. To Jerusalem from Babylon and the king gave him everything he asked for because the gracious hand of the Lord his God was on him now some of the people of Israel as well as some of the priests the Levites the singers the gatekeepers and the temple servants traveled up to Jerusalem with him in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes reign I want you to notice there in that verse that Ezra, right from the outset, what we introduced to him, he is a priest because his bloodline is really important for them and he is well-versed in the scripture. So right away, we see a theme change from worship in this community to the word coming and being restored with this man's Ezra. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in August of that year. He had arranged to leave Babylon on April 8, the first day of the new year, and he arrived in Jerusalem on August 4, if you want specific details, because the gracious hand of his God was on him. Do the math. This is a four-month journey. These guys walked over 1,400 kilometers from Persia, Babylon, slash Babylon, up to Jerusalem. Uh, They didn't go as the crow flies because there's rivers and mountains and all that type of thing. About 1,400 kilometers on foot. So, yeah, if you walk to Gosford, it'll take you four months. Okay? How many of you have ever walked from here to Gosford? Well, there you go. Next autumn, go for it. They walked up to Jerusalem and it took them four months. This was because, verse 10, Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. It's a very, very simple pattern here for prospective Bible preachers. Before you preach it, 
you better make sure you live in it. He determined to study it himself, to obey it himself, before he then taught it to other people. Simple pattern. Live it and then preach it. In verse 11, and here is where we kick into a long letter from this king, King Artaxerxes, the fifth king, who's sending Ezra back, and this letter is inserted into the text here. It's inserted into our Bible. This is one of, I'm going to say, three places in the Bible where the language is originally in Aramaic, not Hebrew. You know how we say the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament? This bit's written in Aramaic. It has, there are a few bits of the Bible that, that come from that language, and this is why, because it's a Persian writing. And he says this, King Artaxerxes has given a copy of the following letter to Ezra, the priest and scribe, who studied and taught the commands and decrees of the Lord to Israel. <clears throat> From Artaxerxes, the king of kings. To... The reason Jesus is called king of kings is because he is, but it's because in this culture, this is what the bigwigs called themselves. So by Jesus' day, fast forward 500 years plus, the Roman emperor was called king of kings. Okay. He was also called God. They worshipped him. It's the cult of Rome. It's an ancient world thing. Just go with it. So when Jesus is given those titles, there's always these subtle nuances to say, he ain't the man, he the man. Okay. So that's one of the reasons Jesus is called king of kings because these men would call themselves King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow. Okay? Same with God of Gods. Okay? Many gods and gods, the big one. Let's keep going. Where are we up to? For, uh, King of Kings. Oh, this is going to take a while. No, it's not. To Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven. This Persian king knew enough to know that the God that Ezra serves well, he the man, he's the big God, he's the God of heaven. So that was the title that this heathen king gave to this God. Okay, and there might be a reason for that I'll, I'll, I'll mention later. Greetings. I decree that any of the people of Israel in my kingdom, including the priests and the Levites, may volunteer to return to Jerusalem with you. I and my council of seven hereby instruct... There you go, Ocean Seven. Hereby instruct you to conduct an inquiry into the situation in Judah and Jerusalem based on your God's law, which is in your hand. Isn't that fascinating? So even this king said, I want you to go down up to Jerusalem and do an audit. But don't do it according to what I'm interested in. I want you to do an audit based on your Bible. Oh, I just thought that was interesting. This king knew something about this God, knew something about the way this God should be worshipped, and knew something about where that was recorded. Somehow this king was interested in the scriptures. And I'll give you a little hint. Here's my theory. This king was four years old when his dad married a chick called Esther. A couple of years in, some guy plans to slaughter all of the Jewish people in his daddy's kingdom and God thwarts that plan and God's people there are saved. This little kid had an idea that there is a God for this group of people who's pretty darn good. Wow. He's now 25 years of age, writing this letter and saying, I'm not going to mess with that God. So you better go and make that God happy and do it the way he wants it. Because I've seen the stocks that hung a guy called Haman. I remember what happens to people that don't treat this God well. It's just my theory. Guys, this is what all the, all the books of the Bible connect and dovetail together. Okay, the story of Esther is very important to understand the mentality of this king. And that's Chad's theory. 
you can take it or leave it. We also commission you to take with you silver and gold, which we are freely presenting as an offering to the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. Furthermore, you are to take any silver and gold that you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the voluntary offerings of the people and the priests that are presented for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. These donations are to be used specifically for the purposes of bulls, rams, male lambs, and the appropriate grain offerings and liquid offerings, all of which will be offered on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Any silver and gold that is left over may be used in whatever way you and your colleagues feel is the will of your God. <laughs> Again, it's this ancient world thing, but it's also saying, just keep this God happy for me. Okay, It's a political move on his part as well. But this is... Uh, Keep this God happy. Do what your God wants. But as for the cups we are entrusting to you for the service of the temple of your God, deliver them all to the God of Jerusalem. If you need anything else for your God's temple or for any similar needs, you may take it from the royal treasury. Here's my bank account. Take whatever you want. This is pretty amazing favor that this king is showing to Ezra and his people. I, Artaxerxes, the king, hereby send this decree to all the treasurers in the province west of the Euphrates River, you are also to give to Ezra the priest and teacher of the law of the God of heaven, whatever he asks of you. So as he travels this four-month journey, if he's passing through your town and says, oh, this gold's feeling a bit light, we think we need some more, you better give it to him. Do what he says. Give him the bucks that he needs to get this job done. You were to give him up to, there's a limit of course, up to 7,500 pounds of silver, 500 bushels of wheat, 550 gallons of wine, 550 gallons of olive oil, and an unlimited supply of salt. Of course, it's to spice things up. Uh, salt was used for the, a lot of the offerings. Okay. Be careful to provide whatever the God of heaven demands for his temple. For why should we risk bringing God's anger against the realm of the king and his sons. Here it is. I don't want that God unhappy with me. I've seen what happens. You go and do whatever it takes to make the God of heaven happy with me. Right or wrong, that was his mentality. Okay? I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that was his mentality. Well, it certainly got him doing something, didn't it? I also decree, verse 24, that no priest, Levite, singer, gatekeeper, and temple servant or other worker in this temple of God will be required to pay tribute, customs, or tolls of any kind. This is basically the church being tax-exempt. Tax okay? That's where it started, 500 years BC. And you, Ezra, are to use the wisdom your God has given you to appoint magistrates and judges who know your God's laws, who know the word, to govern the people in the province west of the Euphrates River. Teach the law to anyone who does not know it. It's just fascinating. It's like, he's not saying, Persia is awesome, and I want you to take all the best Persian philosophers and indoctrinate your people in the ways of Persia. He's literally saying, your God in your area, needs the people there need to be taught what your God wants. This is, this is like a, Profound, profound. Keep reading, Chad. Okay. It's good. Anyone who refuses to obey the law of your God and the law of the king will be punished immediately, either by death, banishment, confiscation, or goods, or imprisonment. This was incredible favor shown by the king who really wanted to look after Ezra and the God that he served. Verse 27. The letter is now over. And then a new text begins. Verse 27, Praise the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who made the king want to beautify the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And praise him for demonstrating such unfailing love to me. This is now Ezra going from third person to talking about himself. To me by honouring me before the king and his council and his mighty nobles. I felt encouraged because the gracious hand of the Lord God was upon me. And so I gathered some of the leaders of Israel to return with me to Jerusalem. And so the second wave of returnees laden with silver and gold, so it would seem 1,800 people eh, approximately, begin the four-month journey with Ezra to instate 
the word of God. Worship had been restored. Message number one, Zerubbabel, thank you for that. But in this wave, it was the word of God that needed to be obeyed and taught and Ezra was the man to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, you just read an entire chapter of the Old Testament. Well done. That's you've congratulations. See, it's not that hard. It's really not that hard. You keep reading. Ezra has 10 chapters. We just read chapter 7. In chapter 8, he gets there and he stewards the monies well. It makes a big point of saying that he did the right thing with all that gold and silver, made sure it went to the right place. He made sure he honoured God with the bucks that he was carrying. The next two chapters, he deals with the issue of marriage, finds out that there's some impropriety in the bedrooms and the marriage arrangements of God's people and also the leaders of God's people who were leading the way in this thing. And he's grieved by this. He explains God's will for them through the scriptures and they deal with it, they make adjustments and they set it straight even though it costs them quite a lot and you can read about that in the last few chapters of the book. I found it profound as I read through this again this week that these two issues, money and marriage, money and the marriage bed at least, let's put it that way, are the two things that are mentioned that Ezra deals with according to the word. Do you remember this time last year? We did a, I did a series, a mini-series on the last chapter of Hebrews called Last But Not Least. Even if you don't, just nod because it encourages me to know that you remember something. It's a book... Yes, Chad, that was amazing. Uh, now don't ask me a question. Um, Hebrews is a New Testament book written to Jewish people and it's full of doctrine in the first 12 chapters and in the last chapter it talks about some very practical areas of life, last things but not least, important things and it talks about money, marriage and I think community was the other thing that we looked at. It's fascinating, these are the two things that are mentioned here and it's not that necessarily that these are the things that matter most when it comes to being obedient to the scriptures. But they do seem to be the things where our obedience to God's word manifests the most. Manifests the most. So, because Jesus, for example, talked about money as being a little thing. He talked about, he talked about it a lot, but he said it's a little thing. Because if you are faithful with this little thing, God will entrust you with something bigger and better. Like, not necessarily financially, but will entrust you with true riches something that's true rich. This is actually just a little thing. If you can't be faithful with a little thing. And that's why it's a big thing. That's why sex and money seem to undo a lot of people because although it's a little thing, it's a big thing. Because it's a... Hmm, it's a big thing because it's a little thing. <laughs> and he's saying, if you can't do the right thing in this little area then that's a big thing. So that's why it's a big thing. Because it's a little thing. I have, I've got myself into a little hole. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the point is, go home and read those two chapters. The reason... <laughs> you see... We, we looked this week, we heard in our church world, okay, in the last two weeks, another significant uh, church leader in a church similar to ours in another part of the world was stepped down from his leadership role because of a big thing that was actually a little thing. And if you're unfaithful in this simple thing, it's a big thing because it's such a little thing to just do the right thing in. And that's why it's a big thing. Because if, if I can't trust you in this little thing, hang on. Some of you, this is going to make sense. Yeah, something like that. The point is, I tried, so I, never mind. That's right. Such a little, little, little thing. The point is, 
Ezra preached the word, taught the word, and instructed God's people to obey the word. And one of the two of the significant areas that obedience matters, which is why the Bible talks about it a lot, are things like relationships um, and things like money, because that shows where our heart is and being honest in those areas uh, is a very, very important thing, which is why the scriptures talk about them a lot. That's not what I'm saying today. The point is this, in that first wave of restoration, Zerubbabel comes back, 50,000 people, and their first priority is to build this temple because a restorative community is a worshipping community. Second wave, King Cyrus sends this guy called Ezra back, and he didn't just send anyone. He sent someone who knew the word, who studied it, was committing to teaching it and knew the ways of God. And I want you to go and make sure that your God's word is restored as a part of this community. A restorative community is a worshipping community and a restorative community is a word-based community. And if we want to take that on for us today, then we look at those two things and we go, yes, that's who I'll be. I'll be like Ezra. I want to be part of a community that values these things. Amen. Is that it? Am I done? Yeah, yeah. Last year, I spent seven, maybe eight weeks in July, in uh, winter, doing a whole series on how to be a word-based people, how to read the Bible, how to choose a translation, how to understand its meaning, how to discern how to apply the scriptures to our life. These are really important things, knowing how to read the thing. So many Christians get told they should, but don't get shown how. And knowing how to do something is empowering. But so is knowing why. So last year, I dealt with the how in a big way. And in fact, is this is subtle, but even the way I preach, as much as I joke around about myself, is to help you to see how you should handle the scriptures for yourself. <laughs> Chad, I saw you throw your Bible on the floor. That was my diary, okay? The, <laughs> um, <laughs> read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. Try to put the pieces together and now look at application for us. Today I'm not going to look at how to read the Bible. I do want to speak about why. Five things of why we should be a word-based people. Are you ready? Let's fire through them. Number one, because the word reveals God to us. And nothing is more important than you knowing God. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because you will become like the God you worship. Look at who a man worships and you can determine the outcome of his life. Who you know, believe, think, assume, act on who God is, is the most important thing about you. Knowing God is what matters most. And the Bible, among other things, is the self-revelation of God in written form. It is God telling us, this is who I am, humans. This is who I am. There are many ways God reveals who he is through people and through creation and through dreams and visions and voices and angels and all that sort of stuff. But we have an objective, it is written, that shows us who God is. And so the word's important because it is the revelation of God. Knowing the Bible is not an end in itself. We're word-based people, then I should know the Bible better. Well, yes, but that's not an end in itself because there were plenty of people in Jesus' day that knew the Bible better than anyone in this room and totally missed God. Knowing God is what matters. But the scriptures reveal him. They reveal what God is like. And so we need to be a word-based people because what you think of when you think about God and we all have faulty images of God from our history, from our past, things that we've assumed, things from authority figures or whatever we've had in our past, we need to have an accurate understanding of who God is. The Word gives us that. It shows us who God is. It reveals His name and nature. Secondly, the, the Scriptures are important. We need to be Word-based people because it not only reveals who God is, 
but it reveals his will, things he has spoken, his ways, and his wisdom. God's will, God's wisdom, and God's ways are found in his written word, which is why Romans says, don't be conformed to the ways of Persia. Okay, don't, be, don't think about these ways. Know what your God's ways are and do that. Know God's ways. Know God's will. Discern God's wisdom for parenting. Amen. For marriage. For conflict resolution. For how to deal with it when you are unjustly treated and hurt by other people. Issues of life. God's wisdom is recorded in his written word. And as clever as you are, please understand that his ways are higher than your ways. His ways are, how many of you already learned God's a bit smarter than you? Mm -hmm. Okay, good lesson. His will, his wisdom and his ways is found in the written word. And what makes us a restorative community for other people is that we are a community that is walking in his wisdom, that knows that his will for us is, among other things, our sanctification. Knowing Christ and becoming more like him. Knowing Christ, revealing him to others. We know that that is God's will for us. We know the ways of God. And this is, when people come into an environment like that, that's one of the reasons we can be restorative because we know that is how God operates. Thirdly, why to be a word-based people is because not only it shows us all these things about God, but it also shows us about ourselves. This came out in our pre-service prayer and pep talk time earlier. Robin asked us to ask Holy Spirit what he thought about us. Well, you can do that. That's great. And hopefully you hear a whisper. Hopefully that's accurate. But you can know that's accurate by looking on the printed page. Because the scripture reveals who you are and what your purpose is on this planet. These are probably some of the biggest existential questions of our generation. Who am I and why do I exist? Who am I and why do I exist? Identity is such a big thing and unfortunately for a lot of people in our community, they can't get beyond surface level identity things. All that seems to matter about them. It's like this big swing we've had in society in the last 20 years where all that matters is my skin colour or my gender. There is far more to you than that. We see what God says about us. We are sons and daughters, is what came out this morning. We are holy people. We are precious people. We are strong people. We're in God sees you a certain way. He has given you an identity, and that identity must be, if you're going to walk in God's wisdom, grounded in who Christ is and how God sees you in Christ. Identity, knowing your identity and knowing your purpose, what God's will uh, is for us, to know him and to enjoy him forever you know the book of james says when you look in the the word it's like looking in a mirror it's like looking in a mirror you can see yourself you can see what god thinks about you and that's a really precious and powerful thing his word is like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path we know who we are because we know whose we are and we know where he's taking us his word gives us that fourthly god's word provides protection provision and pathways to prosperity, protects, provides, and prospers. I don't know we're going to be singing that song this morning. I didn't know Rob was going to mention the word prosperity. It seems like an old word for some of us, but these are good words. God's word protects us because the storms of life do come. Your house will be hit by winds and waves and typhoons. And the, and the crashings of life. And the man and the woman who built that house on the rock, they're going to be okay. They're going to be protected. God's word provides wisdom which gives us protection in life. God's word provides. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. How many of you have ever experienced the nourishment of God's word it's like you leave church sometimes or you leave it you go gee i was well fed today god has 
provided something I needed and it came from his word. God has nourished me. And God provides pathways of prosperity. Psalm chapter 1 says that those, the man who honours God's word, honours God's law, is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season. Whatever they do prospers. And lastly, God's word, and there are many things. I mean, for goodness sake, we could just go on and on here, but I won't today. Lastly, number five, God's word empowers us for a lifestyle of victory. It's really funny because I was doing this. I, do, I did this slide, okay? And I'm like, I don't, I don't use the word victory. It's not a Chad word. And I really felt it was the right word. And then someone used that word this morning about victory. It's like this lifestyle of victory. And I thought that this week because I remember Jesus who when tempted in the desert for those 40 days overcame by saying, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written, overcame the tempter, overcame that trial, overcame by saying, it is written. In the book of Revelation, it says a similar thing. It says they, talking about a group of, group of God's people, overcame their enemy by the blood of the Lamb, by not loving their life so much that they would shrink back, they were willing to, willing to give their life, and by the word of their testimony. Remember reading that? The word of de- or his word becomes our word. What is your testimony? It's what Jesus has done for me. Where's that found? In your everyday life, and it is written in the word. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is my testimony, a written testimony, the eternal scriptures. God empowers you to overcome. And God empowers us to advance through his scripture. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that God's men and women may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For every good work. There are some weird parts of the Bible, including the names. There are, come on, let's face it. All the blood bits and the salt bits and the offering bits. There's a lot of weird parts. But all scripture is God-breathed. And all scripture is there in part to empower us for every good work. The wisdom to not only defend well, overcome, but to advance well. God's wisdom is found in the Holy Scripture. We could keep going. And I think I'm preaching majority to the choir today. We want to commit ourselves to being a word-based people. I want to finish off by going back to that verse in Ezra chapter 7 where it introduces us to Ezra for the first time in verse 10. Because we as a community can take God's word seriously when we as individuals take it seriously. When we as people take it seriously. Let's look at Ezra and take our example from him today. Ezra was a man who determined to study and obey and teach. To study and obey and teach. I encouraged you last week as a community, but together as individuals, let's be worshippers. God is not seeking worship. He's seeking worshippers. Let's be worshippers. Well, today I want to encourage you, you... Y'all and you, to be a person of the word, to study, to obey, and to teach. Teaching's interesting because one of the things I've certainly learned over the years is that there's only certain things that you will learn because you've taught others. If you're part of a grow group, you'll have opportunity, most likely, to be asked to bring a word for people to teach and that will stretch some of you but I tell you what it'll be a great thing because you will learn by placing yourself in a position where you need to teach in fact Paul writes this in the New Testament to a guy called Philemon and he says listen I want you to be active in sharing what you know so that you will understand it I need to understand it perfectly first 
No, no, no. Actively share it so that you can understand it better. It's funny. Grow groups. Super kids ministry. How many of you super kids volunteers or you've ministered to kids and in preparing lessons, I've heard this so many times, say, look, I really learned something today. God really spoke to me. Alex is nodding ahead. I really learned something because I was placed in a position where I had to minister and speak to other people. This month, uh, I was invited, a number of us have been invited to speak to our youth group on a Friday night. Great, another great opportunity. If you're here, I don't think Mark and Aaron are here today, but they did ask me to say, if you feel a particular heart for young people, feel a heart for youth, you can approach them and ask them if that's appropriate, maybe for you to pop in on a Friday night to speak to those young people. It was a really rich and rewarding thing. I think Malcolm just did that this week. If you've got a heart for youth, uh, let Mark and Aaron know. There are opportunities to express truth to other people, and it's one of the best ways to learn. He devoted himself to teach because he'd first also devoted himself personally to study God's word and to obey it. It is the hearing and the heeding of God's word that provides that foundation for the storms of life when they come. Because Jesus said, those who hear my words and put them into practice are like the man who built his house on that rock. And that is something I can't do for you. I can do a half-decent job of a Sunday, despite screwing up my notes. I can do a half-decent job of presenting the scriptures for you, but I can't study or read them for you exclusively. And I can't make you, and I'll never make you, obey them. But I want to encourage you to do that today. Set your heart as a word-based people, as a word-based person, to study his word and to obey it. Right now, on my social media, I'm doing, helping people to read through the New Testament. If you start today in the book of John, you'll pretty well finish the whole New Testament over the next eight or nine weeks. I do a tutorial online, give you a heads up about what to read and what's coming, and for 30 to 60 minutes a week, most of us spend that time easy on our phones on the toilet every, every week. Too much information. 30 to 60 minutes a week, you can read the whole New Testament within 10 weeks. That's a good project to take into next year. Maybe today you want to leave and you want to go, you know what, Chad mentioned that series he did last year about how to read the Bible. Maybe that's something. That you go on our website, iTunes, YouTube, it's called Word Up. Word Up about how to read the scriptures. But whatever you do, please do something with the scripture. Maybe you want to read Ezra and Nehemiah over this time and, entr and trust God to show you something. Please be a people of the word. Please be a people who, as we see in Ezra, tremble at his word. And I think that will help us to be a restorative community for other people community of worship, and a community of the Word. Amen? Amen. Thank you. One of the things the Bible speaks to us about that we wouldn't know unless it was written down is that there is only one way to receive eternal life. In my Persian wisdom, I might have thought there was lots of ways. But the scriptures of the God of heaven say there is one way. It's one of the great benefits of the word of God. We know what that way is. And I don't know everyone here today. I don't know everyone that's watching or listening. But if you've not received eternal life, if you do not know that you know that when you leave this earth suit, you have an eternity of bliss. And the God of heaven is your dad and loves you and favours you because it is his nature and because he has opened access to heaven by forgiving your sin when Jesus died in your place. If you do not know that, 
it's pretty darn important. Because there is nothing more important than knowing God. It is the only way to receive eternal life, among other things. There are many benefits to knowing God. But that is one of them. If you're here today and you don't know God, you might be interested, you might have inklings, you need to know something today. Jesus said, and it is written, that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And no one can come to God unless they come through him. Acknowledge who he is. Believe that he died for our sin and was raised again so he can lead us in this life and cooperate with him. He calls you to cooperate, to confess him as Lord, to admit that he is God and you're not. It's okay if you think you're a king as long as you say he is the king of kings. He's my king. If that's you today, if you've never received Jesus, acknowledged Jesus, decided to follow Jesus, accepted his work for you, and you'd like to do that today, I'd love to pray with you and invite you into God's family because it's pretty darn good. It sure is. I mean, how many of you have done that before? How many of you know God here today? Oh, I hope, I, yeah. There's always some people that never put up their hands. I know that. If you're here today and you've never done that, but you'd like to today, can you put up your hand right now so I can pray with you and speak with you before we go? I'd love to do that. Let me know. I'm very friendly. No one today. Put your hand on your heart. Let's pray. Dad, we thank you so much for this precious day. We thank you that you have determined the time set for us and the exact places where we should be. And today, you wanted me here. Today, I receive your word. I pray for the good seed that has fallen on the soil of my heart today. And I say that it will be protected and it will prosper. I take you at your word and I take your word seriously today when I say I want to be a word-based person. Thank you for leading, teaching, guiding and helping me to do this more and more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au and of course if you're ever in the area please pop in and say good day.